was high Be my guest, throw your insult And if you wanna swing a wrecking ball You might as well try I'm sure it's very simple Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your pretentious and sophomore host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Bo Sanders. Bo is a pastor at Vermont Hills United Methodist Church, a podcaster, and a practical theologian. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Workman Song. Workman Song is an indie and alternative rock project with cunning lyrics and a love for Dorothy Day. You can get connected with both Bo and Workmansong and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators, with currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Bo Sanders. Bo is a, I, I mean, you, you do some podcasting, you make some YouTube videos, and you also are a pastor at Vermont Hills, which is, is that in California? It's in Portland, Oregon. Not even close. Well, somewhat close on the east, yeah. on the West Coast. Uh, so you're, you're a pastor, you are a YouTuber, you're in that world. How, how yeah. crazy is that? And then you do some, yeah, you do some podcasting. Uh, and you're just an all around great dude. Uh, so Bo, you take on a lot of different roles, but I am curious who is Bo Sanders to Bo Sanders? I am a wanderer. Mm. I am uh, on a theological journey. I didn't realize it was a journey when I began it. I thought I was just looking for, uh, some water and looking for some, uh, foraging, and I didn't realize it was going to be become an adventure that would lead me to migrate right out of, of the Christianity and the religious perspective that I was raised with, and lead me to both physically a different side of the country, but also theologically just a completely um, different uh, perspective. And it's been kind of a wild journey when when you don't know that you're about to go on an adventure you don't prepare 
uh, that well. Mm-hmm. And so there are some things that I wish I had known to put in my knapsack and uh, some things that some skills I wish I had known I was going to need and some tools that I wish I had practiced with before I began. But like I said, I didn't realize what it was going to become. I just started walking in a direction looking for something. I didn't realize how far I was going to end up migrating. And I, w- I sort of wish I had known I would have definitely prepared for this journey differently. <laughs> That's great. So you find yourself in the practical theology world. That's kind of yeah. where you find a lot of your work. How did you become interested in practical theology? So I was raised, uh, my mom and dad were in ministry. They were free Methodist ministers. Okay. And then um, we ended up working with the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is like a Billy mm-hmm. Graham style kind of evangelical. And in that world, practical theology is actually practice, like how to preach, how to do pastoral counseling, right? Okay. It's, how, it's how to. And so when I first heard the phrase practical theology, you know, it just seemed a natural fit. Like, well, obviously that's the good kind of theology. It's not theoretical or abstract or speculative. It's actually, you know, doing something. So I was naturally um, drawn to that. But then as I sort of changed um, the groups and affiliations that I had, and I ended up becoming a, a United Methodist, in mainline circles, practical theology is not just practice. Like, you know, my dad uh, runs the Doctor of Ministry program at our denominational seminary, and so he still teaches like homiletics, right? It's mm-hmm. a how-to class. And uh, but in more mainline and academic circles, practical theology is. Uh, so almost like sociology of religion. So we use like qualitative methods of interviews and ethnographies and case studies to actually examine a phenomenon. So it's, it's really funny to me because I'm still navigate between all of these worlds that practical theology, you would think it'd be super clear. Like that's not that difficult of a moniker, but in different <laughs> in different camps, it can mean very different things. So I was prone to like it because I was a minister. I was doing something practical with theology. But um, the further I got into the academic side of it, the more I loved it, because what it does is it takes seriously people's lived experience, and it actually validates it as a location or a loci, as we say in academic (laughs) circles, as a location of theological reflection. And because I was coming from a charismatic background, it seemed to fit perfectly for me to say that your experience of the divine or, or, or your religious experience is a valid location for theological reflection. And so if you are in um, a different community, whether it's a marginalized community or more of a a centered uh, common uh, experience, that your experience is legitimate in this theological endeavor, I am a proud Wesleyan. And we have this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral Mm -hmm. that says you have scripture, tradition, reason, and then where Wesley differed from his Anglican roots is that he added experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's a unique Wesleyan uh, contribution to say that if you're not experiencing 
your beliefs, right? It's incomplete. But also your experience informs your spirituality or religion or theological um, reflection. And so when you put those three things together, that I was a, a minister doing something practical, that I love the, the charismatic aspect of validating people's experience, and that as a committed follower of Wesley, I had this component of making sure that the quad included experience instead of just the Anglican tripod of mm -hmm. um, scripture, tradition, and reason. So when you put those three things together, I was like a duck who found a pond. I didn't even <laughs> know I, I didn't even know I could swim. And I found this thing and I was like, oh man, my brain is vibrating. My heart's wide open. My spirit is just alivened. I'm putting together things I've never put together. And all of this um, really came home for me because it focused on people's practical lived experiences in concrete reality instead of existing in vocabulary words, speculative metaphysics, mm -hmm. you know, high and lofty abstractions. I just love that we get down to the business. So it's almost like a sociology of religion. Get paid to use it. And I know you all get high, but your little brothers and your little sisters don't yet. And you're the apple of their eye. How does process theology shape your practical theology? This is probably the nerdiest question I have been asked in years. Really? Trip hasn't asked you nerdier questions? Um, well, I haven't been on Homebrewed for a couple years, so we did probably ask nerdier questions. Okay. But, um, yeah, but here's the thing. You may not know how nerdy it is. Okay. So inside practical theology... You do have to. So one of the things I love about practical theology is that you locate yourself socially. So you have to you have to say, I'm coming from this perspective and these are my theological commitments. And right. This is what I'm up to. So it's very transparent. Right. So some mm -hmm. people are some people are advocates. They say this issue of poverty or injustice needs to change. And so they take an advocacy perspective. Right. Well, one of the philosophical or theological things you're, that you, is on the menu of things, allegiances you're allowed to do is process. So process has this really vibrant um, kind of sub-discipline within practical theology of people who are doing this from a relational process mm -hmm. perspective. And so... Um, when you read their stuff, they're very forthright. They're very um, uh, clear about what they're up to and where they're coming from. Now, most practical theologians would not probably, I don't even know if they've have heard of process thought, right? Well, let alone, okay. you know, read anything like mm -hmm. that. But, um, but for those who do exist in kind of those two worlds and they can bring it together, you know, for me, it's just a match made in heaven. It's like peanut butter and chocolate, right? They really go together because a relational view of the universe lends itself so perfectly to the human 
aspect of practical theology that I just, you know, I just think they're a, they're they're a match made in heaven. They perfectly complement each other, and um, and it goes together well. But here's why it's nerdy. I am always trying to convince people because I'm not actually a process thinker myself. I'm just process friendly. <laughs> because because of Claremont and because of Homebrewed, I became semi fluent in it. But for me, what I do is process is like having a really fancy tool in your tool belt that if you get stuck, whether it's theodicy and like the problem of evil or whatever it is, um, a passage of scripture, when you're stuck, it's nice to have process because you can reach into your tool belt and pull this thing out and do something, execute a maneuver that without process, you can't do. So process for me is pure utility. It's just, it gets me out of some problems I wouldn't be able to get out of without it. How about but, that? Yeah, but I am not, uh, I am uh, by no means a, a convert or a disciple. Right. Um, I'm just conversant. I'm process adjacent. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so one of those things that you with within your world as a pastor of a church mm -hmm. is uh, one of those utilities that you have to think about often is ecclesiology. So how yeah. does process yeah. shape and inform your ecclesiology? I'm trying to think of how not to overstate this because it's going to sound like hyperbole. It's going to sound like I'm <laughs> I'm being ridiculous. So in the 21st century, I don't know how you do ecclesiology that's not relationally structured. Mm. I, I, when I say that, I mean, I see other people doing it. I just don't know what the heck they're doing. Because it seems to me that for everything that we saw unfold, specifically in the second half of the 20th century, not just in North America, but around the globe. And because of the internet, we have access to, you know, really regional and contextualized ministries all over the planet. It just seems unimaginable to me that you wouldn't look at it and say, yeah, we've got to get more relational. Because every time I talk with people in, who aren't open to relational thought as kind of the, the primary way of moving forward, I always want to say to them, well, what's the alternative? Because hmm. if the alternative is like reinforcing the institutional elements, right, of religion or, or, or the spectacle, of like stage oriented worship services, right? The celebrity culture, mm -hmm. the, the cult of personality, or like even for those who want to make it primarily advocacy and, um, and, and working on the behalf of um, those who are disadvantaged and, and marginalized. But in the realm of ecclesiology, for me, it is thoroughly and wholly relational. And so the way that I think about our Sunday gatherings, 
the way we think about organizing teams for ministry, the way we think about discipleship and empowering people in their area of giftings. If it's not relational, what is it? Is it informational? Is it institutional? I mean, I honestly, I don't know that I can't imagine, I can't even conceive of a way of proceeding in the 21st century that isn't relational. And I think that one of the things you see in church history, Christian history, is that there are lots of really helpful and fruitful models that have been abandoned or underutilized in in the rubbish pile. And if you have um, the energy and the inclination to go get them and dust them off, there's there's lots of things uh, in our inheritance, the things that have come to us in the givenness of Christian faith that we can utilize that are perfectly situated for ministry in the 21st century. But dude, the thing I cannot get down with is the society of spectacle. Like Mm -hmm. if we, if we're setting it up so that people come to be spectators at a stage show and we make them consumers of religious experience, I, I can't, that is not for me. I cannot justify spending my life and my energy that way, there has to be a different way to configure and shape the church that impacts the world and transforms our lives than the thing you see um, the, in the megachurch or mm-hmm. the, state, you know, the stage show, the, the stadium revival. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, for me, the future is relational. It's more than technological, more than institutional, more than informational. It's relational. Idiots give speeches, radiation in the beaches. Not enough artistic pieces that make us more like Jesus. One of the church structures that you have implemented at your church uh, that highlights and uh, in a concrete way highlights the relational aspect that you're talking about is that you all meet in and around. So I don't know if you were the one that instigated that, uh, but if you were or if you were not, like what was the reaction to your church when when that decision was made that you all were going to meet in and around in a sort of circular pattern. Mm -hmm. So this was um, a slow change for me. It started when I was the pastor of a church plant in New York and I would stop, but you know, because sermons back then were three points in a poem, right? Or something. And I would just stop between my three points and say, any questions, any comments? And I found out that that was my favorite part of the service because it was the live moment, right? The interactive part, the unscripted. So then when I decided to go to seminary, um, I came out here to Portland and I actually was pastoring a church in Olympia, Washington. And 
we changed the shape of the sanctuary by undoing the straight rows, like the pews, mm-hmm. and bringing in these little cafe tables. And it was the still the three points in a poem, sermon. But what I would do is in between the points, I would say, turn to the people at your table and talk about what you heard or you know, talk about, you know, what's the next thing we need to talk about or what's the big barrier here. So that was like step two. Step three was when I went down to Los Angeles and I switched to being Methodist. We started a second service, like a baby church, like a church within a church called The Loft LA. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Chris Spearman and I, and then we got a musician named Brad Hooks. And the three of us worked with the group that was there as part of the college and career ministry to just dream up a different way to do church. But for us, it came out of our theological conviction that we wanted to democratize our gatherings and decenter the sermon. And once we had those two phrases in place to democratize our gatherings and decenter the sermon, we ended up over a you know about a five-year period where we actually had about three years of gatherings at the loft, but there was some planning and some transition. We ended up moving into what was the old chapel. And we set up this space that was like part coffee shop, part sacred space, and part soundstage. So like we had our musicians interspersed throughout the the seats. Mm-hmm. And so ev- we said everyone's in the band instead of everyone <laughs> looking you right. know, at the band at one. And uh, our sermons were dialogical it was the two of us chris and i talking or one of us talking to somebody else who had you know an an investment in the conversation and we would present the idea and and every time we would have like if i talked and then you talked then we would take a half step to the left and after we did that three or four times we would have made a complete circle right in the middle of the room So I loved the Loft LA more than anything I had ever been a part of. And then when it was time for me to come back up here to Portland to be a professor, um, I realized that that year of being a seminary professor, that every Sunday I would like go and visit a different church or I was talking with my seminary students who were doing their MDivs. And I kept saying in the back of my mind, if I ever get a chance to be a pastor again, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Mm. because the the only situation in LA that I would have changed is that we had two services. One was the the liturgical gathering with stained glass and the robes and the, you know, all the liturgy and the lectionary and everything else. And then we had this second service that was the outreach service. And uh, and that and that really grew and took off and it was beautiful. But I realized that for the health of the entire congregation, if I ever got a chance to do it again, I was only going to have one gathering or I do one gathering, but do it twice. But I wasn't going to have two different worship expressions. Um, We were going to whatever we did, we were going to do it together. Hmm. And so. I got a chance to take over this church that they were they were just about to put it into revitalization. It had dropped below in weekly attendance. It had dropped below the point where it was going to be open much longer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I worked out a deal where I made a proposal to do church a different way. They liked it. Uh, the denomination appointed me there and said, you know, you have two years. See what you can do. 
So first thing I did is introduce conversation just to get everybody comfortable with it. And then, you know, we had to have the tough conversation, but it was time. And I took out the pews and <laughs> I, yeah, just took them right out of the sanctuary. And then we put down the carpet tiles and made a completely blank slate. And we brought in chairs instead, really comfy chairs. And we set them up in the round. And every week we do a different configuration. Sometimes it's a horseshoe. Sometimes it's different pockets like um, spread throughout the, the sanctuary. Um, we have different pockets. Sometimes like this week we have the piano is in the, the physical center of the space. And we have six round kitchen tables set up around because it's communion week. And okay. we're going to, yeah, we're going to take communion at six so I'll break the bread in the middle, but I'll break it into six. And then we're going to have and we're going to serve each other communion, but like family dinner style. Mm -hmm. But I move the furniture every week and, uh, it, you know, it keeps clicks from forming. But it also allows us that depending on what the, the theme is or the topic is that week to configure uh, the furniture in a way that facilitates our gathering. And it takes a while to get used to, you know, there are little things you have to get used to, like you have to have multiple projectors because depending on where somebody's sitting, they need to be able to see the words right. on the screen, you know, just little things you have to work. Um, they're all just little tweaks, but the heart behind it is just simply this. We live in an interactive culture in most people's week, their opinion, their contribution matters except when they go to church. Hmm. They sit through an hour-long service, and the thing that bothers me the most is that at most churches, it does not matter who attends. It only matters that they attend. Because hmm. they're not contributing anything to the gathering. They're, right. sitting, they're sitting through a pre-scripted show. And it really doesn't matter who's there, just that people are there. Right. But at an interactive church, it really matters who's in the room because they're bringing their experience and their insight and their unique contribution, and it gives shape to the gathering, and it really matters. So you have to have multiple generations, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have people from multiple perspectives, probably political alliances, sexualities, races, genders, persuasions who's in the room gives direction to the conversation and i love it i i i honestly don't know if i could ever go back right to to front-facing single direction church that isn't interactive where my contribution doesn't count i don't know if i could do it i've tasted of the goodness i can't go back <laughs> <laughs> once you've tasted, you cannot untaste <laughs> I know you've been probably touching on it uh, a bit, but what do you mean by Church 2.0? So I get this from Doug Padgett. So he, um, when we first started thinking about doing this thing in L.A., um, we had become aware of what Solomon's Porch was doing in Minnesota, and they had put up the camera so that we could physically see what a gathering looked like. Mm -hmm. And so we said, that's really awesome but it's very minnesota we like in la it has to look a little different so but we were inspired and what i had gotten from doug was this idea of church 2.0 so 
it's borrows it's from web language like worldwide web language so web 1.0 is like if you go to most church websites they're basically in electronics yellow pages right right that's that's 1.0 uh, it's not interactive at all the, the most agency you have as an end user is to click around on different links or you might be able to comment on something but web 2.0 is like facebook and um, ebay and you know all social media now where they provide the space, but not the content. So the thing I have to convince people of all the time with Church 2.0 is it's a twofold thing. We provide the space, the sacred space, but not all of the content. People bring that to the table. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I have to always convince them of is, look, it's not a free for all, right? It's not anarchy. It's there's a form. So when you go to Facebook, there's a box and it says like, what are you thinking? Or how are you feeling? Right. And you have a couple options. You can upload a photo or make a video. Right. But it's not a free for all. You can't like change everything about your page. It's just, you just get to fill in this, you know, form this box. And so church 2.0 is that same way. We still have a call to worship, a morning prayer, you know, a, a hymn, mm -hmm. um, you know, an offering. I mean, we still, we provide, it's not a free for all. It's not make it up as you go. There's still a form. It's just that punctuating our time together are these unscripted moments of contribution. And so sometimes we'll read a passage of scripture together and then we'll break up into smaller groups and we'll talk about it. And then people will come back and they'll actually tell me what their conversation sounded like, and that will give shape to the sermon or, or where we go. And so it, that's the 2.0 in Church 2.0 is you provide the space, but not all the content, right? It doesn't mean you don't prepare at all or that there's no, or that there's no structure. It just means that it isn't entirely prescripted. We should aim to make amends with enemies and friends. We should sing more pretty songs and stop glorifying sin. So today we have Sean, who is, uh, as I was just telling him, the main instigator of Workman Songs. Uh, so oh, quick, quick, sorry. Oh. Workman song singular song. Oh, I, I, Three, I make two. <laughs> I make too many things plural that really should be singular. It's okay. It's that's, it's a that's, weird name. It's like easy to mess up. I I get a lot of like s's and apostrophe s's where they're not supposed to be. Oh, I I mean I I'm I apologize about that, but we'll go with it. So this is going skipping stones on the waterfront, you know. That's right. Uh, so you're the main inst instigator. Uh. What, uh, what sort of led you to this project? What, have you been making music before? What, what sort of inspired you to focus on this particular project? I've been making music for a long time, Mason. It's just that when I moved to New York City in 2011, uh, no one seemed to be booking you if you performed under your birth name. You needed to come up with like a clever moniker, yep. you know, like yep. Father John Misty was kind of just coming into vogue at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually had a blog called Workman Song, which which had like a long hermeneutical explanation. <laughs> but but uh, a lot of it also had to do with the Catholic worker of Dorothy Day. So mm -hmm. 
to me, it was kind of like a Trojan horse mis- missionary type name mm-hmm. of, of what I was trying to accomplish. And what I was trying to accomplish was uh, distill uh, my faith into uh, an honest song, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and I was also trying to make a living at it because the workman right. is worth his wages. Right. So and that was a conflict for me for a long time, like charging for music. Uh, charging for ministry. So I figured whilst in New York City in the heart of Babylon, I'd attempt to uh, to try it that way. And that's where the name came from. And it's just stuck because at this point, I've put out a few releases and some people are following on Spotify. So I just, I just put everything there. It's just, it's a placeholder now. There, there's been a whole uh, a whole slew of alter egos like Ruben Smiley and Ion Selig. And I've just kind of put them under the Workman song hood. That's awesome. Uh, you, you briefly mentioned a person that I really love, and that's Dorothy Day. What are ways that Dorothy Day has inspired your music? That's a great question. Well, uh, her irreverence towards uh, her own faith tradition, uh, you know, like she doesn't get that flowery or sentimental mm-hmm. with with her Catholicism or, or her religiousness to her. To her, it's just what you do, you know. And um, I, I was born Jewish, so I'm, I'm some sort of Jewish Christian. I just don't have much of a tradition myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but having grown up with some of those Jewish uh, holidays and seeing that that's how you anchor into your faith as a Jew, uh, you know, the, the ritual is a given. The legalism is a given that you can defer to. to uh, and it's almost like a litmus test for your sincerity and earnestness. So... I don't know. I, I like Dorothy Day's matter of factness. Mm. Uh, it came to, you know, well, I'm Catholic, so I do this. At the same time, what she did was so drastically different from what other Catholics did because right. her 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 relationship with uh, the the Catholic prompt uh, was, was so intense and sincere, and you know, to me, it was like this combination of like a franciscan impulse but just such a hard-ass version of it yeah, that, that really resonated with me and and she's like a, a 20th century figure she she lived in the post-industrial world and i think she kind of left behind some blueprints for how to operate because she was a, she was a socialist she was an anarchist she kind of went through all these like secular uh philosophies uh on her way to christ and and she just found that wholeness was 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 in the object of her faith as opposed to uh, the goal of a, of an economic or political philosophy, which mm-hmm. resonates with me a lot. Uh, so a lot of people ask me if workman song is like a you know socialist workers paradise illusion. I said <laughs> that I had no idea. I didn't know anything about like any of that stuff when I was getting into. It. I, I'm like a very virgin when it comes to political philosophy, and I'd like to stay that way. Um, cause I like to, I like to be a fool for Christ. And I think she was kind of like a surgical fool for Christ, you know, mm-hmm. like Dorothy Day, she, she went, she went balls to the wall with her faith, uh, the way a, a fool for Christ often will, but, but her, the keenness of her insight was, uh, I mean, frightening, you know? Mm-hmm. So she was a surgeon. She was a surgical fool for Christ, I think. I love that. So uh, tell me about some of the new tunes that you got out. What what inspired some of those? 
Well, the latest album was uh, The Secret World of Ruben Smiley. Um, and I'm putting out some new stuff. So I'll, I'll tell you a little about Ruben Smiley and I'll tell you about what I'm working on now. But the last release was um, this past October, a year ago. And uh, The Secret World of Ruben Smiley was just a collection of songs that I produced myself that weren't really in the in the folksy genre that I'd kind of been performing mm-hmm. uh, up to date. It was more of this kind of like glam rock, borderline like glitter poppy thing. And uh, it was very experimental for me. And because I couldn't find a band big enough to pull it off because it was kind of complex arrangements, I just decided to um, to, to create karaoke versions of the songs. And I created this kind of ridiculous character named Ruben Smiley, who's basically his backstory is that he used to work with Carlos Santana and he had a falling out with Jay-Z, <laughs> left music, uh, became uh, an economics professor, uh, became a neocon. And I had this whole narrative plotted out for him where he, he was going to fall in love with Melania Trump and he was going to try to get her. But of course, he couldn't get her because... He's enough of a conservative that he believes in the fidelity of marriage and right. the sanctity of marriage. There's this tragic hero thing through which the part two was going to be the redemption of Ruben Smiley. And <laughs> I don't know if I'll get to the redemption of Ruben Smiley, but that's the latest release. There's a lot of like glam rock stuff there. And what I've started doing now uh, as I switch gears from the album model as an experiment, I'm always experimenting, mm-hmm. which which drives marketing people crazy. But um. <laughs> I, uh, I I started a, a radio show and podcast called the Workman's Song Show, which is kind of heavy on the Fool for Christ evangelism. It's like really weird um, and silly and fun. And I just dump a lot of new recordings onto that. Mm. And just I'm just trying to experiment with like different platforms for release. So they're buried in these like one to two hour long podcasts. And I'm getting a feel for who's listening right now. But to me, it's almost like um, what do they call that a uh, like a test audience kind of thing. I, I'll mm. I'll put this this material out, you know, on Spotify and all that stuff soon enough. But um, a lot of that material is more explicitly uh, Christian themed. Uh, some of it is worship music I wrote when I was actually a worship leader at an evangelical church in like 2010. Um, some of it is interpretations of like the baptist hymnal because i've been working at uh i've been working with a a baptist church uh one of the first native american uh churches uh in in the country called uh gay head community baptist church Uh, so i've been working with that hymnal and uh i mean i I can't keep track I, i put out a lot of stuff and then there's like this secret google folder that some of my patreon people have mm-hmm. access to and and they can listen to like pretty much every demo i i do there's a lot of stuff i'm i'm experimenting but yeah ruben smiley is the most recent release the workman's song show is is kind of where all the easter eggs are hidden <laughs> awesome uh what are some upcoming projects and uh maybe possible tours that you uh are maybe envisioning or hoping for or even have planned well uh that's a good question. So I, I have a uh, a Feast of St. Francis uh, event slash uh, extended musical presentation that I'm preparing for early October. Mm. 
So I, I live on Martha's Vineyard. I'm going to perform that here. I'm going to do that in my my homeland of Western Massachusetts, like Northampton area. <laughs> I'm going to do that in Brattleboro, Vermont. I've been doing a, a Sunday night gospel, uh, rock and roll gospel kind of informal church thing at a at a dive bar here called the Ritz, and I'm kind of trying to franchise that so in New I, York. I, uh, this is in Martha's Vineyard now. Okay. Because yeah, I know I let, something like that uh, by a guy um, named Pastor Vince. And, do you know Pastor Vince I, Anderson? I know I know Reverend Vince quite well. Oh, yeah, fact, Reverend Vince. Yeah, I I, uh, I worked with his music ministry at Bushwick Abbey in Brooklyn, yeah. New York, uh, 2012 to 2015. Yeah, I I, I uh, got to meet him uh, in April. So what uh what are some ways that listeners can get connected to you and your work? Go to www.workmansong.com. Not plural. Not plural and not possessive. It's not workman's song. It's not a song that belongs to a workman. And it's not the plural songs of a workman. It's just as if, as if I were Chairman Mao himself, but changed my name to Workman's Song. <laughs> that's like kind of what the idea is. That's, and that's why so many people ask me, like, are you some sort of like socialist uh, renegade here? <laughs> Workmansong.com, uh, and I'm on Spotify, and uh, I'm on Mixcloud with the Workman Song Show, and uh, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm uh, streaming live from www.wvvy.org, which is the community radio station, and you can find all the archives. Just Workmansong.com. That's all you really need to know for the internet. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you are you've just been a pleasure to uh, to uh, talk to, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to connect over Reverend Vince. How about that? It's amazing. But you know, one thing I want to say is that this little world that we're in, uh, this religionless church thing, you know, mm-hmm. and this and this dirty gospel thing, and and all that. I mean, it's new. You know, like the immersion mm-hmm. church is, you know, what they call it, and. It's a world that we're in, but it's a world we're creating. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that we may have uh, crossed paths with some of the same people, and it makes me feel very happy. And <laughs> it's it's it. There's a Yiddish word for it, which is it's beshert. It's meant to be beshert. It's yeah. beshert. Well, it's beshert. Th- thank you so much uh, again, and hopefully we can cross paths soon. How do you think that your church resembles and then also does not resemble the emergent church? So one of my uh, gifts is that I tend to take literally things that other people take poetically or figuratively (laughs) or or uh, and then I take poetically and allegorically what everyone else seems to take literally. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming you probably take Genesis 2 in particular as the the literal interpretation. That's literal. That's literal. Oh yeah, that, but that that Genesis one uh, stuff. That's just nonsense. That's just like all poetic nonsense. Yeah. So I'm basically like a photo <laughs> a photo negative of most people. Like, I'll give you my favorite example is um, when when Jesus gives us the parable of uh, Lazarus, the the beggar and the rich man. Most people read that kind of 
allegorically or or uh, poetically, but I think Jesus is actually giving us the uh, the ontology of the afterlife. I think that you're going to be able to talk back and forth from whatever paradise turns out to be and whatever the bad place turns out to be where people are like burning up. You're going to be able to talk back and forth. And I think that's literal. And that's part of the hell is that you oh. will know. Right. And then people are like, dude, come on. You don't take anything else literally. Why do you take that literally? But it's it's part of my counterpunctual reading. I just I kind of find where everyone else is in lockstep in unquestioned interpretation, and then that's where I take my sharp left, like Furiosa in uh, Mad Max Fury Road. When 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 the path between the Citadel and Gastown is too well trodden, I have to take the hard left, following Furiosa. <laughs> right, so. One of the ways I do that is with uh, this uh, kind of view of how we do church. And so the emergent thing is something everyone else took as a word picture and I took literally. (laughs) Everyone else thought that emergent was like a brand name. Not me, baby. (laughs) I took the scientific theory and said, emergent means that the smaller component parts give rise to the larger expression. That's what emergent means. Mm-hmm. I think church is emergent. And that that's not a brand name or a gimmick or a shtick. Right? It's not a technique to get more people to come to church. Right. For me, for me, it was literal. <laughs> that the smaller component parts, like the 50 people who show up, they give rise to the larger expression. It is not top-down. It's not predetermined. It's not, there's no blueprint, right? This isn't construction. Emergent reality says that who shows up and how they interact, this is the relational part, and how they interact, that is what we become. Hmm. So for me, emergent is, I'm a literalist. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. So, <laughs> so here is the bon- Bonhoeffer question that you've been waiting for. What are ways that your church in work speak and relate to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity? Okay, I will answer that. But there's something first I have to say. Okay. Okay. So I think that it's important to realize that people's attraction to Bonhoeffer is usually the gateway drug with C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so not everybody gets to Bonhoeffer. And here, but this is why I bring this up. Most people who even get to Bonhoeffer, what they get to is the cost of discipleship. Right. Which can still be read in that very much that individualistic, uh, evangelical charismatic way. Yep. Most people do not get to the letters and papers from prison. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're like a Tolkien geek. Uh, and I'm a Tolkien geek, by the way. My, my entire arm is the oh, story yeah, look of, at that. of the Lord of the Rings. I have a whole sleeve that tells the story. But you're like the Tolkien geek who has read the Cimmerillion. Oh, and, yep, yep. Right? Most people do not have any frame of reference for... Like, they don't know why in The Lord of the Rings those magic um, 
glowing orbs, why they can see like different places or talk to each other or see the future or other possibilities. Like they have no idea what those things are, right? So anybody who has gotten to religionless Christianity is they're pretty deep. You have fallen down the rabbit hole. Uh So that's my, that's my caveat. Okay. So having said that, the other part of the letters and papers and the part that I have chosen to really embrace and imbibe with is the world come of age. Mm -hmm. The world come of age is probably the most potent concept most people have never heard of that if they would embrace it or it just even engage it, it would transform the way they imagine faith, life, and ministry. Because hmm. we don't live in the world we used to live in. We live in a world come of age. We just celebrated the 70 year anniversary of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. We, humanity has grown up, not in a good way, in a monstrous way, but we are no longer uh, at the whims of the weather and the fates. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't live in the same world that the Calvinists have mastered. Uh, (laughs) See, the Calvinists have like a a, a 17th century metaphysics. And I actually am willing to concede. You all won. All right. The election thing, have at it. You, as as somebody who's in the Arminian tradition, I'll concede that. Uh, I'll tap out, say, uncle, you got this one. You guys can have (laughs) that. Here's the problem. No one's playing that game anymore. Like you, you want a game no one's playing because hmm. you have to first introduce people to the rules of the game and then you have to tell them why you're so good at it. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't live in that world anymore. So the world come of age for me is the missing component for most of these conversations, because once you understand that the world changed in the 20th century, and and I'm not saying it in a good way. I'm saying it in a monstrous way. Mm-hmm. That even the Christianity we have, this is one of the things I talk about, the Christianity we have is a Frankenstein Christianity. It's, it's a monster that's no longer under the control of the creator. Mm-hmm. And so in, it's in that environment that religionless Christianity has an audience. and. I am, it's a conversation I would absolutely love to have. Unfortunately, in order to initiate somebody to the concepts it takes to get there, you're like four, (laughs) you're like four or five degrees removed from most people being able to participate in that conversation. Right. But I still think it's one of the most valuable conversations we can have. So here's how I get at it. You know the phrase, uh, most people say they're spiritual but not religious? Mm-hmm. So I've decided to do the photo negative and invert that. And I tell people that I'm religion, uh, uh, that I'm uh, re- religious but not spiritual. Okay. So I, I, this is my thing is I've, I've decided to embrace I'm religious but not spiritual because the part of religion that I'm interested in is the lig. 
right? And it's that word mm-hmm. that we get, um, like ligament is mm-hmm. from that same root word. It's the thing that connects us all. So this is that relational component mm-hmm. and, and binds us together. So I'm not interested in the re part of religion, but I am interested in the lig and the us. So mm-hmm. I'm, lig- I'm ligious. I'm not religious. I'm just religious. So you're, you're religious, but not spiritual. But not spiritual. <laughs> so, and that's what I mean is it's a longer conversation. Uh, and you have to build up a little um, connection with people before they'll go there with you. But I honestly, the part of religion that I'm interested in is the part that connects us and, and con- binds us together. Mm-hmm. So the lig and the us. But man, in a world come of age, I got. I have no, it's not that I'm against spirituality. It's that I, I don't know what it's for. Hmm. And so in the absence of that kind of concrete um, material difference that it makes in people's lives, I'm sort of starting to become more religious and less spiritual. Yeah. Because the thing that I'm figuring out is, you know, no matter what somebody says their religion is or their spirituality, the one thing that's true of everybody is that they're consumers. Mm. And that, you know, John Cobb, to do a process person, John Cobb says that uh, capitalism is the one true global religion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, consumerism for me, the thing I really want to be careful of is that we are not setting up religious experiences for people to consume because ultimately, you know, it's, it's we who are consumed. Right. And it consumes us. And so I want to have real engagements where people's contributions matter, where their experience is a valid location for theological reflection and informs our path forward as we work out faith together. That's what I'm really interested in. Though for me, that's something worth investing your life and your time and your energy in. Religious stage shows and performances, I just have no time for. Last question, how can listeners get connected with you and your work? Yeah, so thanks. And I thank you for having me on. I've been really looking forward to this. I've been watching you from a distance a little bit, and I like, <laughs> I like what you're up to. I like your style. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, I like that you'll randomly quote like me without you, which is a pr- pretty great band. I mean, and, uh, yeah. I mean, they're pretty fantastic. And, uh, and I like that you're uh, snarky at the, at the wrong times and that you're serious at, at inappropriate times. It, it, uh, I think you have real, <laughs> I think you bring something good to the conversation, if I can be honest. Well, I, I'm, I gla- I'm glad that I'm snarky in the, wrong, or in the right times uh, and, and serious <laughs> in the wrong times. Um, 
I am a, a fellow podcaster, so I have a podcast called Piecing It All Together, P-E-A-C, uh, with Randy Woodley. He's my mentor and friend and now co-author. And uh, so Piecing It All Together is our new podcast. We're only 14 episodes in, so we're kind of having fun. And and um, that's why I was so interested uh, to watch what you were doing and kind of how you were proceeding and that you're finding your own style. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very different than our style. But, uh, yeah, so Piecing It All Together uh, com would be a great place to go to for my conversation with Randy. And then if people are interested in some of the Church 2.0 stuff that we've been talking about, I'm on WordPress still, uh, Bo Sanders WordPress, mm-hmm. and you can find me at, at Public Theology. So I'm basically I'm just doing theology in public, and that's where I post my uh, YouTube videos and uh, some of my podcast stuff and just some of my blogs. So those would be the two best uh, places to connect with me. I'm on Facebook. And uh, so is piecing it all together. But yeah, I would love to connect with people. Look, here's the thing. I know that my style and and this thing that that makes my heart beat, I know it's not for everybody, but I really kind of view my ministry as following behind the carnival cruise line of evangelicalism. And uh, I know I'm never going to be the biggest boat. I know I'm never going to be the party barge. Okay, you can't compete with that. But there's a lot of people for whom that's not working, and they jump overboard. And I just kind of wander around and pick them up. And um, so, if, if if anything that I've said seems like it would connect with you, and maybe it would be a better way forward or a way that you'd be open to experimenting i would sure like to connect and trade notes and just see what would work uh in your context i love learning from other people awesome well thank you so much bo you are a blast to have on here and uh (laughs) thank you again yeah man this is this is great thanks for having me on I hope that episode left you satisfied and fulfilled, so much so that you have no desire to ever listen to another podcast episode of any show, ever. If you would like to connect with both Bo and Workman Song and their work, you can find the links in the description below. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it.